Good morning, everyone. Um, please turn your few Bibles to page 906. Um, we're going to be reading out of John 20, 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who loved the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out to the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooped to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the lines, the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which Jesus, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with, not lying, sorry, with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stood, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they had laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, he said to, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me for I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went to an, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, they, and that he had said these things to her. Fathers, we open up your word and we look at the life of Mary. Again, I would just ask that you would show us what devotion to Christ looks like and why. And that, Lord, we would be as encouraged uh, by Mary's testimony to be like her in the, in the sense that we, we follow Jesus. We would just look to him. We would be grateful for his saving work in our lives and and just have the kind of uh, heart devotion that she shows. Lord, I know that that's only possible when we know how good you are. So impress upon us, Lord, as you did with Mary, just how good you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Mary Magdalene. Today we're uh, moving back into the New Testament as we study the women of faith for these six weeks. 
And uh, Mary Magdalene is our subject this morning. There are lots of Marys in the New Testament. I don't know if you've uh, ever caught that, but there's, there's a whole lot of different women named Mary. Uh, and I'll give you a few of them uh, that you're probably familiar with. Uh, besides Mary Magdalene, there's, of course, Mary of Nazareth, who is the mother of Jesus. We have Mary, who is the mother of James and Joses. We have a Mary, who was the wife of Clopas. We have Mary of Bethany, who is Martha's sister, Mary. Uh, and then we can read a little further in the New Testament and see that uh, John Mark's mother, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, uh, his mother was named Mary. And then we get to Romans, we see that Paul addresses one of the disciples in the church whose name was Mary. So it's a very common name. It can be a little bit easy to get them all confused as to which Mary was, was which. But those were all different uh, women, and our focus this morning is Mary Magdalene. Uh, let me tell you about the name Mary, why it's, it was so popular uh, in Israel at that time. It has two meanings to it, depending on who you ask. It's an ancient name. It goes back to the days of, of the Egyptian occupation, uh, and, and that, uh, that version of the name was Miriam. And Miriam means uh, beloved, right? Miriam means blessed in that regard. And, and then it has a, a more Hebrew root, which was Mara. And Mara is like the opposite of beloved. It's bitter. Uh, it can even mean rebellious. Uh, so you have uh, a name that has these sort of this full meaning that, that, that feel like opposites, but I would, I would submit this morning that Mary Magdalene's life was actually a picture of both meanings. Someone who was bitter, who became beloved. That's Mary Magdalene's story. Uh, what does Magdalene mean? Well, her, her surname Magdalene is likely a reference to her place of origin. That's the best we can come up with. There was a, a little village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. And, uh, and for all we know, Mary was from Magdala. So Mary Magdalene, she's of this little village on the Sea of Galilee. And we're first introduced to her in Luke chapter 8. I'll put it up on the screen and I will read it for you. Luke 8 verses 1 through 3. So soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's daughter, excuse me, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. All right? That's Mary's first introduction into the gospel accounts. And then we're going to see her throughout as we go through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. She was a follower of Christ really all the way through. And for this morning's message, I'll break it into three sections. We're just going to look at her life. Essentially, what was her life like before she came to Christ? How did she come to Christ? And then what was her life as a follower of Jesus? What did that look like? What do we see in the, in the New Testament here that, that tells us a little bit about the before, the, how she came, and then the, the following days, her, the rest of her life as a disciple of Jesus, all right? And I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in that. We should all see a bit of ourselves, those of us who are followers of Christ, because that's your story. There's a, there's a before, there's a, there's a moment where Jesus comes and rescues you and saves you, and then there's what is life like as a follower of Jesus, uh, so let's see what God did in her life and be encouraged by it. 
I'll start with our first point this morning, which is just this. It's Mary's need for Jesus. This is a kind of a description of her before and how she, how she needed Christ, what she, how she needed to be saved, and what did she need to be saved from. She's one of the most well-known characters in the Gospels in the New Testament, but she's probably also one of the most misunderstood. Although she features prominently in the Gospels, there's not a lot that we're actually told about her life. Uh, we don't, we're not given a lot of the, the nitty-gritty details of her before and after. But, uh, and, and because of that, I think that's led a lot of people to speculate about her past. Uh, so I'm going to try to separate some of the, what we do know from what has sort of happened throughout church history and, and different speculations that have come about uh, to describe what Mary's past was like. Uh, you might realize that recent scholarship, and I use that term really loosely, uh, scholarship, this is not good stuff, but uh, there, there's been some ridiculous claims made about Mary Magdalene, and one of the most absurd, probably the most absurd among them, was that she was somehow actually married to Jesus. That the two of them secretly got married, that they even had children together. You might remember the Da Vinci Code and how that was such a kind of a big controversy within the church. Uh, it, it, it sort of was built off of some of these false claims, and then it perpetuated them uh, that, that there was some kind of behind-the-scenes story about Mary, and particularly with her relation to Jesus. Where does that kind of stuff come from? Well, it came from the, the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels are second-century heretical writings uh, that were purported to be written by Jesus' disciples, including Mary. There's a Gospel of Mary, Magdalene, uh, as a part of these Gnostic writings, but they're they're phony. They're written well after uh, Jesus' life and his disciples' lives were over, and I'm not going to give a whole lot of time and attention to them because they're just garbage. But you may have heard that kind of thinking, like she's, she was maybe married to Jesus. Uh, however, there's some other things that have a little bit more uh, credence, I guess, a little more credibility uh, throughout church history. A couple of theories. Uh, this is one that, that Mary... Um, basically was the woman of the city that Andy preached about a couple weeks ago. Uh, you remember in Luke chapter 7, there was the woman who, who was the sinner, and she came and she, she wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And so some speculation has existed that that was Mary Magdalene because Mary Magdalene's introduction follows that story. Um, now, I'm... I don't think that there's any validity to that because I think if, if Luke, who's writing this, and Luke is a, is a skilled historian, wanted to make that connection, I think he would have. There's a, there's a break in the text that just doesn't seem to flow well between those two thoughts. Um, so I don't, I don't buy it. Uh, but that has been, uh, that's, that's been a theory that's been espoused for centuries. And it's led us to, led many people to think that then Mary was perhaps uh, had, had like a, a past of being a prostitute. You may have heard that. Uh, another, another theory about Mary's identity uh, comes in, uh, in John chapter 8, and it's the story of the, the woman who, again, was accused of being a sinner. And you recall Jesus stepped in. They wanted to stone her, and Jesus said, hey, the first among you who is without sin can be the first to throw the stone. Uh, some people have speculated that that woman was also Mary Magdalene, or instead Mary Magdalene, uh, and again, there's not any real biblical warrant to support that. So why am I bringing it up? I'm bringing it up because I think many of you have probably heard these kinds of stories. 
I remember hearing that many, many times, that Mary Magdalene was, a, was probably a prostitute. Uh, she was probably an adulteress. And, I, and I, the more I study that and look into it, I really don't think there's any reason to believe that about Mary. Okay? So if you've heard that, shelve that. Right? There's not a lot of biblical support for it. What can we know about Mary, though, is really found right here in the, in the, the opening scene here of Luke chapter 8. We know for certain, we're told here, that she had once been tormented by demonic possession. Uh, it says here in that text that from her seven demons had been cast out. And this is a significant thing to understand about Mary's past. Demon possession is a serious malady. If you do a study of demon possession and demonic activity in the New Testament, it shows us that those who are oppressed or possessed by demons suffer some terrible, terrible things. Some of the examples that we're given are these. Extreme illnesses. Uh, we're, we're, we're told of mental disorders such as insanity, uh, depression, anxiety, fear. We're told of physical problems like blindness or deafness, uh, being mute, the inability to speak. Uh, we see self-harm. Uh, we see cutting and mutilation. We see seizures like epileptic seizures. And often, most, most often, those who are dealing with demonic possession or oppression are cast out from society. They're sort of uh, banished, and they live a tremendously lonely existence where they're, they're likely to have all of these things amplified, right? Especially things like depression and anxiety and fear and the self-harm. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Possessed people are tormented people. They're tormented, and for many of them, they suffer this way for years, Oftentimes, they suffer this way to the point that the demons took complete control over their body, over their speech, over their functions. And so when we're told here that Mary had seven demons cast out for her, it tells us that her level of torment was extreme. So I said that the, the, the point here is her need for Jesus. We're looking into her past. Mary would have a deep need for help for rescue, for salvation, because it seems that her level of torment was extreme. We should note that when we look through Scripture and we look at demonic activity, we're also told throughout Scripture that true believers in Christ cannot be possessed by demons. Why can't we be possessed by demons? Because we're indwelt already with the Spirit of Christ, right? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Um, but demon possession is though not something that Christians are going to suffer, it's also not something that's typically portrayed as a sinful consequence of those who are tormented. Okay, Now that might surprise you a little bit, but I want you to consider uh, that if you think about the instances of, of demonic activity that you see in Scripture, that this is, this is true. Demon oppression is usually the result of being victimized by those demonic forces, by satanic activity. Why is that? Because Satan seeks to destroy. Satan is looking to kill and to prevent the plan of God. We should therefore recognize that Mary here is really probably more victimized than deserving as a sinner of her torment here. And yet we should also recognize that sinful people, sinful people are always subject to the domain of darkness, 
You know, Ephesians 2 talks about that. We're transferred, right? We're, we're, we're at one time before Christ. We were, we were following the prince of the power of the air. We are subject to satanic influence and power. We're under that reign and rule. So as sinners, we're all susceptible. But don't get the sense that because someone is possessed that they're somehow more deserving of a sinner than you are. It's a victimization thing. And that's the condition of Mary's life before Christ. She's one who was deeply in need, deeply in torment, and she knew it. She surely knew it. And so her following after Jesus was surely driven by her deep awareness of Jesus' sole power to save her. Jesus' sole power to set her free. So how did Jesus set her free? Well, that's the second point this morning. Mary's freedom in Jesus. Now, we're not given an actual conversion story in the Bible about Mary, so we have to make some assumptions here, but we can deduce from Scripture how she would have come to saving faith in Christ. She came to faith in Christ the same way any of us do. And it's simply this. Jesus pursued her. Jesus pursued her. And I can say that confidently because there's not one person in Scripture who's got demon activity going on in their life. Not one who willingly comes to Christ on their own for deliverance. Not one of them approaches Jesus and says, I need help. In every single case, they're either brought to Jesus by others who are concerned about them, or we see Christ pursuing them on his own. They never voluntarily interact with Christ. And that makes sense because evil spirits want nothing to do with Christ. And they want nothing to do with, with the person that they're harming or afflicting having any possibility for deliverance in Jesus Christ. So they avoided Jesus at all costs. The devil wants to keep us from Christ. He wants to keep you captive apart from the saving work of Jesus. But when Jesus pursues you, whether that's through the, uh, through the work of others who are bringing you to him or Jesus' direct contact, when Jesus pursues a demoniac every single time in Scripture, they are freed completely and they are freed immediately. And so this must have been true for Mary as well. We can be sure that she didn't fix herself. She didn't somehow do something on her own efforts to, to present herself cleansed and, and then therefore willing to be and able to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had to do a saving work in her. And Jesus tells a parable to illustrate that point. This isn't just true for Mary and isn't just true for demoniacs. It's true for any of us. But Jesus tells a parable to, to demonstrate the point that you can't fix yourself. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 11. I'll put it on the screen. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So I think as, I, as you read this, this might actually describe exactly how Mary ended up with seven demons. The point of the parable is this, is that when you try to clean yourself up by your own good works, by your own power, you only at best make temporary changes. You don't have the power to expel 
demonic power or satanic power from your life. You can, you can clean up the house a little bit, but at best, those are temporary changes. And when that spirit departs, he's going to come back. And again, it's, we're told it'll get worse. They'll bring more. The, the power of darkness always comes back and always in greater measure than before. Only Christ can truly make you free. And so Mary, we can see here, was delivered once and for all because Jesus expelled the demons. And Jesus saved her. And Jesus did that by his own will and by his mercy. So Mary, is a, she, she's one who knows, this is what I was. And then Jesus comes and Jesus pursues me and now I'm free. This is what I now am. I'm, I'm freed up to be a follower of, of Jesus Christ. She's a recipient of his salvation by his grace, and, and therefore, she's a transformed person. And what we're going to see now as we walk through her life and we see how she followed Jesus is that transformation, that sense of gratitude for what she, who we, she was and now is because of Jesus' presence and work in her life, it drives a tremendous devotion. It drives a tremendous devotion. And I want to I wanna just take a, a moment to highlight how that's true for, it can be and should be true for all of us, because what we're seeing here is that we're seeing here the, the introduction of, of what we've categorized as, as a doctrine of the gospel that we call irresistible grace. Right? When you can't come to Jesus on your own, you can't fix yourself, but Jesus comes and he meets you where you're at and he does an immediate and complete work of deliverance in your life. It's irresistible because when, when you're met with that power, the, the power and the will of God to transform you, there's no power that can withstand it. It's complete, but it also drives in you then an awareness of the freedom and the goodness available to you because of the mercy and grace of God. And it's irresistible in the regard that, that I think like, like Mary will find in her devotion, when you're, when you're a captive who's been met with freeing power and grace, nothing is more beautiful and compelling than to follow after that which has set you free. Right? And that's, again, that's the story of, of all of us in Christ. That's, that's the power and the saving power of the gospel and the love of God in Jesus Christ. When we're met in our, in our captivity and set free in Jesus, wow, it changes things. Wow, it transforms us. And wow, it's an irresistible grace. So that's Mary's freedom in Christ. He delivered her from that bondage in her past. And, and then finally, I want to just look at what we're told about her then devotion to Jesus, thirdly. There's four key evidences of Mary's deep love and devotion to Jesus in the Gospels. And I'll, I'll just briefly talk about them and then just give a little bit of application for them. The first one is this. Four key evidences that she was a chief financial and material supporter of Jesus' ministry. How do I get that? Well, again, look back at Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, and we see it here. This is the introduction of Mary. And notice the last part of it. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and these other women were told here that they provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means. So from the very get-go, the introduction of Mary and the recognition that she's now been saved from her past and made a follower of Jesus, we're told that she, out of her means, supported 
the full ministry of Jesus and the disciples, probably for the duration of the three years of that public ministry, she was continually actively involved in that ministry as a supporter. She was there in person. She was there relationally, but she was also there financially. Now, given her past, we don't have any reason to believe that she had like this great treasure from which to support that ministry. This probably wasn't the kind of support that was, uh, you know, hugely significant from a earthly standpoint, from a financial standpoint. But it was for the heart of God because it, it makes it here into His Word it, it, just a, a recognition of her devotion to Christ that like, maybe like the widow's might, she gave and supported that ministry. Again, a, an evidence of the grace in her life. Jesus, look at all that you've done for me. I'm going to give all that I have to you. And so we see that in her material support. Second key evidence of her support is that she was present at his crucifixion. And there's lots of different passages that, that uh, talk about this. In fact, all four of the gospel accounts talk about it. I'll put one of them up here, Matthew 27. There are also many women there, this is at the crucifixion scene, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. So again, we see them from the beginning of his ministry all the way up until the death they were following Jesus, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and again, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Her devotion to Jesus led her to follow him from life, even to death. And then beyond that, we see that she was present at his burial. Joseph, this is Mark 15, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and then we're, we're sort of give this little cutaway scene, like just kind of pull back and look off into the distance and off into the rocks. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus saw where he was laid. They watched that whole thing take place. And I think what's interesting about that, and I'll fill this out in just a couple minutes, is that none of the other disciples were there. They were, remember what they were, they were all scattered. They were, they were running. They were afraid. They were, whatever they were doing, they were weeping, whatever they're doing. They, they, they're gone at this point. Not Mary. She followed even past the death to the burial. And then beyond that, finally, she was the first to see the resurrected Jesus. This was read to us by Abigail a little bit earlier on, but we see Mary weeping outside the tomb, right? She's the, she's the first one to show up to the tomb. So she's at the burial and, and she's waiting there. Why did she come? Well, we're told here that you know, Joseph and, and had come and taken the body and prepared it, but it was the Sabbath. And so they were kind of rushing to get the body prepared and put into the tomb. So they, they wrapped him up in this linen shroud, but, but all indications are that it was probably done very hastily, probably not done properly, and so much so that Mary and others had planned that they were going to come back and do it right after the Sabbath was over. And so that's why she's here. Her devotion to Jesus extending even here to wanting to make sure that he was, he was honored as her Lord, even in his death, even in the tomb. So she's the first one there, and she sees that it's empty, right? And they begin to run back and tell some of the other disciples, hey, you got to check this out, and, and they come. And, and here's what I, what I love about this, this scene. Uh, as, we, as we see Jesus appear to her in the, temple, in the tomb, he says this to her. After she says, teacher, he says, don't cling to me. 
for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does that tell you she was doing? <laughs> Clinging to him, right? She sees him, she recognizes him, and her, her first response is just hug him, just grab him, right? And he, so much so that he has to say, you can't do that yet. I've, I've not yet ascended. But I love the picture of that. I love the devotion there that she has. And I love the fact that she was the first one who was able to see the resurrected Jesus. Now, let me, let me just, just tie all that up, those four evidences, and give just a, a little bit of application to you. And it's, it's really simple. I think Mary is the perfect example of the proper response to a God who meets us in our sin and our despair and sets us free by his grace and mercy. She's the, she's the example uh, that I want to look to is, is what is it, what, what should my life look like when I follow Jesus as one who recognizes that I'm not what I used to be? And because of Jesus, I'm now something completely transformed. I've, I've been made into a follower. I, I want to look like her in this regard, and it's this because Jesus loved Mary, Mary loved Jesus, and he, she simply gave him her whole heart. She gave him her heart. And I think she did that in a way that I don't want to oversell this because I don't want to undersell the devotion of other disciples, but there's something unique and significant about her level of devotion that sets her apart. And I think it's why we see her so often in the Gospels, why she's mentioned. She's, her, the nearness that she had to Jesus was recognizable. It was clear. And the devotion that she had to him was unique. Again, it strikes me that she followed Jesus even when the rest of the disciples had not. Right? And, and again, I, I want to be cautious not to, not to, to present uh, some undue motives on the other disciples, knowing that during the crucifixion, that was a confusing, that was a painful, that was a difficult time. But what we see, what happens with all of them is that they, they kind of make their way off in hiding, right? They're fearful about something. They're fearful for their own lives. They're just upset. They all kind of scatter except Mary. And again, I don't want to make it sound like Mary didn't have fears. She probably did. I mean, she was weeping, Right as, the, as that burial scene was taking place, she had fears and probably had her own doubts. But, but it's notable here, nobody else followed Jesus to the extent that Mary did throughout the entirety of his life, his death, and ultimately to his resurrection. Nobody. Even in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, she followed Jesus to the cross and beyond. That's, an, that's a tremendous application point for us. She was there. She was there. She was the first one there. And oftentimes she was the only one there. But she followed Jesus. She always followed Jesus. No matter what it seemed like the world was doing around her. No matter what the doubts, uh, how founded the doubts and fears could be. She always followed Jesus. That's a remarkable and a beautiful picture of devotion to Jesus. And I think it's one that we should all emulate. It's one we should all emulate. And it's one that was rewarded. Her devotion was rewarded. It's an incredible thing 
to be remembered throughout history as the first person to see the resurrected Christ. How cool would that be, right? How cool would that be? And you think about the, just the sovereignty of God and, and the way that, that God is, again, writing his story from beginning to end. And we, we talked about this last week. God is writing this beautiful story and every one of his beloved children has a part to play. They have, a, they have a place in the story. And you consider Mary's place in the story included this incredible honor of being the first person that Jesus would appear to post-resurrection and announce, it's me, I'm back right? I'm back. I was reading, uh, I can't remember who, because I read lots of different things this week, but one of, the, one of the scholars that I was reading this week imagined in his mind this scene in eternity past, where the father and the son were talking about this moment, no, you know, knowing that the resurrection was coming and, and sort of mapping out what what that whole scene was going to look like. And he, in his imagination, he had this, this, this picture of, of the father and the son kind of going, okay, who's the first one I'm going, to, I'm going to show up to? And sort of looking at each other and instantaneously and at the same time going, Mary Magdalene. That's totally extra biblical, but I think it's cool. Right? Like it, it, it just, it, it's... I want to think, I want to think that, that God would, would have that kind of reaction to my devotion, like just go, yeah, Bill, that guy, you know? And I, and I think Mary had that, which is tremendously awesome. It reminds me of, of all the promises in Scripture that, that, that one way or the other tell us this, for those who wait on the Lord, for those of us who wait on the Lord, He will appear, right? His salvation will come. His salvation will be realized and received for those who wait on him. And Mary Magdalene was that. I mean, if, if you look up waiting on the Lord in the, in, the, in the dictionary, there ought to be a picture of Mary, which is why I put that little picture back up there. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, we don't have good pictures of Mary Magdalene or what she would have looked like, but I love that picture, right? Just, that, just, that just speaks to me of like, being at the foot of Jesus and just extending your hand up and saying, I'm waiting on you. I'm clinging to you. I need you. I'll follow you anywhere. I love that. And this is our simple application this morning. Why was Mary like this? Think about where she was and, and now where she is because of Jesus. It's, he, he changed her. And devotion is, is driven by gratitude. Devotion to Jesus is driven by gratitude. So our challenge is just, just simply this. Remember who you were. Or maybe the, you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You, you say, I, I, don't, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you're here because you sense a need. right? So remember where you are. Remember who you were. And then, and then recognize that, that Jesus and his love pursues needy, sinful people like us and he transforms us and he sets us free. And, and, and when, you, when, you, when you can just have the gratitude of knowing that this is the kind of God we have in Jesus Christ, oh, it drives a devotion. Maybe you're this week, you're thinking, I, I've, my devotion to Jesus has been wanting. Maybe you just feel like you've been kind of coasting along and, and that, just that sense of, of passion and desire for following Jesus is just kind of waned. You've gotten caught in the mug, the, the mug and the mire, the, the, just the, the sort of the staleness of life. And you're going, where's, where's my devotion? How do I get it back? Again, look, 
Be reminded by Mary Magdalene's story. You get it back by remembering who you were and now who you are in Jesus. And that it's true. You can't, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete transformation in Christ. You can't go back. You're not going to be possessed again by the evil that once besat you. You are free in Christ because Jesus sets us free. And the gratitude of that truth how to drive a devotion. Yeah, Jesus, you know what? I can't always see where you're going. Sometimes I don't even see that you're here. He was in the tomb. And Mary still followed him. That's devotion. That's trust. That's the kind of waiting on the Lord that God's scripture promises us that we will see him. So give him your heart. Give him your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible life, Mary Magdalene's life, Lord. It, it, you know, we're, we, we, can only, we can only guess about all of it. But we, we recognize what you've highlighted, and what you've highlighted is it's stark. It's this, this woman who just wanted to be with Jesus because Jesus wanted to be with her. And I just pray that simply that you would just drive that same devotion in us, Lord. Let us, let us long to cling to Jesus this week because we remember that he's, he's the one who sets us free. He's the only one who can. And that he died for us. He's, he went to the cross for us. And he rose again for us. So I, I would just ask that you'd help us to daily be like Mary, that we would just kind of come to the tomb every morning and peek inside and be reminded that he's not there because he's risen and he is Rabboni. He is our teacher. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And oh, what a freedom we have in him. Teach us to sing in gratitude for who you are. And thank you for Mary. I look forward to meeting her one day in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.